Talking Animals on WMNF. Just going to make a quick adjustment here right off the bat. Why wait? So again, this is Talking Animals. I'm Duncan Strauss. My guest today is Catherine McDonald, PhD in marine conservation biologist and assistant professor at the University of Miami. If you were being glib, you might say McDonald is a shark expert with a boatload of research on these predators. And yes, we might need a bigger boat. Indeed, McDonald conducts or oversees ongoing research as director of the Shark Research and Conservation Program at the University of Miami's Rosensteel School for Marine, Atmospheric, and Earth Science. As an interdisciplinary conservation biologist, one of her own areas of study is shark biology, while her research interests include human-wildlife conflict. So she's an ideal expert to address the recent spate of shark attacks and sightings that have dominated the news this summer. For example, how much is actually changing in the shark world and how much is just increased or higher profile reporting? And to what degree should humans make significant ongoing changes in their behavior in and around the ocean? She's a good sport in offering commentary about these high profile predators, but is clearly more passionate in discussing the smaller, lesser known sharks that she studies. These and a raft of other shark matters are covered in the conversation I recorded with Dr. McDonald Monday evening. I'll play back that conversation in a few moments here on Talking Animals on WMNF. Before that, I want to briefly mention an extraordinary cat named Elwood that our family said goodbye to uh, yesterday. About 17 years ago, my son and I set out to adopt a cat, found a jet black cat we liked, but the rescue said he was enormously close with his brother and they should really be adopted together. So we took them both home, where they lived amongst our other animals, and while the brother, Homer, was a solid citizen, solid enough, Elwood always stood out as a smart, classy, very kind cat. They both lived long, happy, pampered lives. Several months ago, Homer passed away, and we lost Elwood yesterday. It happened fast and unexpectedly. I'm super sad. I was really connected to that cat, but I'd like to think the brothers will somehow be reunited. Farewell, sweet Elwood. Also coming up later in today's program, I'll speak with Eric Keaton, Chief Marketing Officer at SPCA Tampa Bay, which is presenting Clear the Shelters, its annual no-fee adoption event this Saturday, August 26th. Cats, dogs, and pocket pets will be available Saturday, but other animals will be similarly available for no adoption fee through the end of August, amongst them seven pot-bellied pigs, including one named Porcahontas. We'll hear more about this from Eric Keaton later in today's show. Right now, though, let's play back my conversation all about sharks with Dr. McDonald. 
She teaches a class exactly at this very time, so it wasn't possible for her to join us on the show live. So recorded Monday evening, this is Catherine McDonald, Dr. Catherine McDonald on Talking Animals on WMF. Let's welcome to Talking Animals, Dr. Catherine McDonald. Thanks for joining us, Dr. McDonald. My pleasure. You know, as you know, I'm seeking your expertise uh, to help make sense of this flurry of shark attacks and sightings that have often dominated the news this summer. And more to the point, to explore the reasons behind that flurry. But first, partly to place that kind of expertise in context, let's get to know a little bit about you. First of all, where did you grow up? Meaning more, did you grow up in and around the ocean area or not? Uh, I grew up in Highland Park, New Jersey, which is not very close to the ocean. Uh, But I spent summers at my great-grandparents' house when I was small, which is in coastal South Carolina. So were you a beach and water person then early on? Uh, I was a mud person. Uh, I definitely liked getting outside and just, you know, I was one of those little kids who wanted to get into nature and be dirty and explore. Um, So I loved the ocean, but I also just loved climbing trees and throwing rocks and all the fun little kid stuff. Yeah, just being out and about amongst nature and critters of one kind or another. So when did you specialize less mud, more ocean, uh, if that's the way to look at it? Yeah. My great-grandparents' house backed right up on a salt marsh, so it wasn't very close to the ocean at all, but it was quite close to ocean waters that came into the marsh. And um, it was a great place to get muddy. And I remember running around in it, and I wanted to know everything about everything that I saw. What is it? What's it doing? Why is it doing that? Uh, And nobody could tell me because I didn't have a marine scientist in the family. And so I I always wanted to know more. And that started with checking out books from my elementary school library and continued all the way up through a PhD. Wow. You sort of became the person that you were trying to ask questions of when you were a little kid. A little bit. Yeah. But, uh, well, somebody needs to answer these questions. It might as well be me, right? Yeah. So when did Critters in the Sea, I mean, between... The kid who couldn't get the questions answered and the person with the PhD, was there like either a gradual dawning or maybe in a particular episode that like a catalyst where you said, this is what I want to do kind of academically and or by the way, professionally, this is kind of where the direction I really want to head. There was no single aha moment for me. It was more, you know, the gradual buildup of a lot of small decisions over time. Uh, but my interest in sharks has an aha moment. Um, when I was about eight and I was on the beach near my grandparents' house, um, somebody caught a little bonnet head, you know, about two feet long, uh, in the surf there. And I'd been there with my cousins and we'd all been swimming. Uh, and a bunch of the strange adults on the beach were very, very worried that, you know, this little bonnet head had been in the water with children who were swimming. And I remember I like, you know, I was a curious kid. I kind of walked right up to figure out what was going on. And I remember looking at this little shark on the sand, kind of forlornly flexing its gills and thinking like, if somebody's in danger here, it doesn't seem like it's me. Mm. I was in the water and I'm fine with you guys putting him back. Mm. Uh, And I, I just, I wanted to know more and I wanted to know what, how I could have helped in that situation because in the moment, you know, I didn't know, I sort of poured a bucket of water over his head, but I didn't, know how to help the situation, either the shark or the adults. Um, And I think that that is the moment where I really got interested in sharks and where I really saw them as 
you know, underdogs who were misunderstood. Yeah. Well, that's a theme that kind of carries through. But even when you were that little kid in that scene, um, sounds like, first of all, super curious at all times, including with that episode. And also more than a little empathetic, it sounds like, too. I mean, for, I am, for someone that young. I am a pretty soft-hearted person in general. I think I get it from my dad. Oh, yeah. Well, that's a great quality to pass along early on, if, if you can. So that episode on the beach there with that shark, that's where you would sort of trace what's happened since, really, to that, and just sort of has always kind of propelled you on some level or another? I went back and checked out every book my elementary school library had on sharks, and I made my dad, this is going to date me, get me a CD-ROM uh, that taught you how to identify sharks based on their silhouettes. Uh, oh, wow. And uh, I, I don't know why that existed at all, but... Uh, CD-ROM? Yeah, well, a CD-ROM to identify sharks by their silhouettes. Who needs to do that? <laughs> well, you certainly did. You had, they had at least one taker. Yeah, so... Really interesting. But that sounds like that just kind of further fueled the shark-oriented curiosity. You know? Yeah. And uh, let me let you folks know this is Talking Animals on WMF. I'm Duncan Strauss. My guest is Dr. Catherine McDonald, a marine conservation biologist and assistant professor at the University of Miami, where one of her specialties is studying sharks. This interview was recorded Monday evening. So let's talk a little bit about the present day, Dr. McDonald, and the kind of research you conduct at the moment. Absolutely. Uh, so uh, in keeping with our, our theme here of me as a, a slightly soft-hearted uh, appreciator of bonnet heads, a lot of my research is focused on uh, juvenile and small-bodied sharks. Mm. So the sharks that tend to get the most press and the most scientific attention are the big apex predators that everybody thinks of if you say, like, list five sharks for me. Right. Yeah. I've asked a lot of people to list five sharks. And usually what you get is a white shark, a hammerhead, a bull shark, a tiger shark, maybe a mako. Um, Possibly a lemon. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, but, you know, the sharks that you tend to see on programs like Shark Week or uh, in movies about sharks. Yeah. But of course, there are more than 530 species of shark. And the vast majority of them are very small relative to the sharks that make the news. Um you know, the average length of a shark on this planet is, you know, three and a half feet, maybe. Wow. Uh, so the vast majority of sharks live in a really different world than those apex predators, right? They live in a world where they need to find food and avoid being food. Uh, and that occupies uh, what we call a mesopredatory role, right? Where you're not the top of the food chain, but you're not the bottom. Uh, those sharks, to me, I think are some of the most interesting animals, uh, because their lives are more complex than apex predators, at least to me. They have different problems. Because they to solve. do occupy that middle and they have other a lot of challenges kind of related to that? Or Yeah, they have to solve the same problems apex predators do of finding enough food, but they also have to avoid becoming food for apex predators. Uh, and so they have to balance uh, those considerations as they make choices about how they live. So they're at any given moment they're possibly predator or possibly prey. Exactly right. Yeah, that that that's a tricky uh, line to swim, I would guess. Yeah. So what kind of results has this kind of research yielded that you could the lay people that they're already dumbfounded that that most, there's so many sharks that are so much smaller than the ones that get all the uh, the media action. But like, what 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 are some of the findings 
that would be notable or, or and or surprising, including to you, that your research has turned up so far? So a couple of years ago, my team identified the first known nursery area for great hammerhead sharks on the east coast of the United States. Um, great hammerheads are uh, incredible animals. They're the largest members of the hammerhead family, uh, but very little is known about their reproduction, uh, including where they pup and where they spend their early years of life. And it turns out at least one of those places is only a couple of miles from downtown Miami. Uh, and uh this was one of those serendipitous scientific moments where, you know, we caught a juvenile great hammerhead and we were like, that was very strange. How lucky. And then a few weeks later, we caught another one. Uh, and over time, uh, we built up the data to say, no, no, this is a site that they use as a nursery. Um, and so, you know, for us trying to identify habitats that are important to them in those early life stages when they're smaller um, can be a really important component of conservation. So the great hammerhead is uh, considered critically endangered by the IUCN, the International Union for the Conservation of Nature. Um, and they're very difficult to protect as adults because they make incredible long range migrations, right? They cover huge distances during their lives. Uh, and so they cross state boundaries, they cross national boundaries, they spend time in international waters. It's very hard to protect them in all of those places. Uh, but it's a lot easier to protect nursery habitats in ways that help ensure that they reach maturity. Uh, and so protecting nursery areas can be a really important conservation act for shark species. And how does a nursery area become a nursery area? I mean, it sounds like you guys were surprised that you kind of have one in your backyard. So there must not be necessarily a prescribed way that they develop. It just, just happens, I guess, over time or some, somehow, hey, today, is this is now a nursery area where six weeks ago, whatever, we would have never imagined it. So to categorize um, something as a shark nursery, you need to find juveniles in the area more frequently than in other areas across mm. years. So it's so it's in use over multiple years by females um, and over prolonged periods of time. So it takes some time to build up the data to say, like, yes, that's happening. Uh, the hammerheads really surprised us, but we knew that Biscayne Bay, which is... Um, the sort of inshore waters immediately around Miami uh, was nursery habitat for at least seven other species of shark and ray. So I wasn't surprised to find something using it as nursery area, but I I wouldn't have expected it to be the great hammerhead uh, uh, whose reproduction still remains very much a mystery uh, in many cases. And with all the migrating that they do, Obviously, it seems like, as you kind of noted, there's a greater vulnerability that goes with all that sort of traveling around. Is there also a corresponding vulnerability that goes with just the striking appearance of the hammerhead? So hammerheads have uh, a difficult time because they are incredibly um, powerful swimming sharks. Uh, they can actually fight so hard on a hook and line that they basically poison themselves with the toxic byproducts of that anaerobic exercise, right? They they can um, die of the stress of being captured fairly easily compared to other sharks. Uh, and so for us, we always try to handle them very carefully, but it's one of the reasons that they're very vulnerable to um, fisheries interactions, right? If you catch one as a commercial fisherman, even if you don't really want it, the likelihood that it's going to be okay after you release it is not as good as for many other shark species. 
And does that also make it particularly challenging then to conduct research on them? Because it seems like to find out about a hammerhead shark, at least representing other hammerhead sharks, you would have to have a hammerhead shark access to them to look at them, take measurements, do whatever kinds of research you're doing. So you, you almost have to know that you're putting them in harm's way a little bit just by the nature you just described but hopefully for the greater good for conservation and expanding their population, I would guess. Yes, you you want to do it very carefully uh, when you work with them. Uh, and a lot of my work involves teaching, right? I, I train students to do field work, uh, but my students all know that if uh, it's a hammerhead on the line, they're not working on it, right? My staff is going to work it up as fast as possible and get it on its way uh, because we know that that's the best thing we can do to give them the greatest chance of being released in good condition. Yeah. So I just want to make sure that uh, I have a lot of other questions about a lot of other things, but since we're ostensibly here to talk at least partly about all the nutty reports of shark attacks, shark sightings, whatever, so maybe we should at least spend a few minutes on that and then we can come back to other things. And we're not going to have time for everything I want to ask you about. I know that much already. So it has been, it has seemed bonkers and it's been like one of the things that I was curious about right off the bat is are there really that many more shark attacks slash sightings slash whatever, or is the, the reporting changed and or become larger and or higher profile? So it just seems like there's a lot more of that activity than maybe there had been the year or two before. Yeah, that is a wonderful question. I think the answer is that in terms of the frequency of like bites and harmful interactions with humans, it's quite stable. Uh, where this year, we're just on track for where we were at the same point in the year last year. Uh, and I, you know, I just came back from a scientific conference where we heard from the head of the international shark attack file uh, that this is looking very much like the prior year. So often the media narratives about this are, I don't want to say they're manufactured for drama, but a little bit. Uh, and every year is a banner year for these kinds of events when, in fact, you know, on average, every year is about statistically average for these events. But I do think that you're onto something with sightings. Uh, I think that as commercial drones have become increasingly widely available, people are more and more aware of the presence of sharks near beaches, even when those sharks do not interact with the people that are present at that beach. And I think that that can lead to a perception that... Um, Sharks are present in greater numbers that may or may not be true, depending on where we're talking about and what species. So a couple of things about that. One is, so when there are all these reports of all this great shark activity and acts, whatever, do people like you, knowing that really it's not maybe all that different than the year before or two years before, whatever, kind of roll your eyes and just say, all right, here, here we go again? Um, actually, the thing I'm doing this year is uh, when I get media requests to talk about this stuff, uh, trying to ensure that I talk about actual hazards at the beach that are more statistically likely. Uh, so I tend to bring up rip currents and preparedness for them uh, yeah. because kill vastly more people at beaches and knowing what to do if you're caught in one uh, can absolutely help keep you safe. Uh, whereas worrying about a very statistically unlikely event like encountering a shark. Um, is probably not a good use of your time beyond ensuring that you have a good first aid kit uh, in your car or, you know, handy when you're out in nature. Yeah, that's really interesting. Because again, in preparing to speak to you, 
was just looking around and just beyond the obvious deluge of, of coverage that was sort of prompted the interview initially in some ways to begin with. And as one measure of how crazy this country or parts of it has gone about sharks at the moment, uh, in the current edition of The New Yorker, there's a piece about drones, since you brought up drones, using drones, I think in East Hampton Village, the lifeguards are using them to help protect swimmers against sharks. And in the same issue of The New Yorker, there's a review of this play called The Shark is Broken. It's all about Jaws. And uh, I just thought, well, that's statistically or otherwise pretty bonkers to have that much shark action in one one issue of a weekly, you know, notable weekly uh, magazine. So I just thought, man, uh, sometimes it's not just about the sightings or whatever. It just seems like, but but swayed perhaps by that in some way. Yeah. I mean, then I think that for a lot of people, um, you know, sharks touch something primal for a lot of people. And I think it's often um, tied to our fear of the ocean. Uh, I've noticed that the people who are most afraid of sharks are often people who um, are not the strongest swimmers and don't have the most experience in those kinds of environments. And so I think those things are tied, you know, our our feeling of vulnerability uh, when we are in the ocean, which is obviously um, a place that we did not evolve in. Right. Uh, so what would you say to, because it seems like there's people who sort of the reverse might be true, that they love the water, they, they're probably decent to strong swimmers, but they are freaked out about sharks. And, and so they barely, if ever, go in now just because they still think, if I go in, something bad's going to happen, and uh, I don't know. What, I don't know if there's anything to say to those people, but you, you better than me, probably. I don't think that I have ever come up with a fact to offer that will overcome people's feelings, right? I, I mean, and and that's maybe not a realistic goal to set for a fact. So, shark scientists often talk about the statistics, right? You're statistically more likely to be bitten by a New Yorker than by a shark. You're statistically more likely. You know, New Yorker be, person or New Yorker magazine? Just out of New care. Yorker person. Okay, just kidding. Okay. Uh, you're statistically more likely to be killed by a vending machine than a shark. Uh, but I, I don't think that with facts you can undo fear, which is almost by definition not strictly rational. Yeah. Uh, and so the thing I say to people is it's fine if you're afraid of sharks. You know, I... It's fine if you're afraid of spiders. There's nothing wrong with feeling the way you feel. Yeah. But you do get to make choices about how you act on those feelings. And so if you're afraid of the ocean, then great, swim in a pool. Enjoy it. Right. Uh, but yeah. I don't think that that's the point at which you want to call for people to kill sharks or spiders uh, so that you can live in a world that scares you a little bit less. That reminds me of something. I just want to, again, let people know that just maybe just tuned in a bit late. This is Talking Animals on WNF. I'm Duncan Strauss. I'm speaking with Dr. Catherine McDonald, an assistant professor at the University of Miami, where in multiple capacities she studies sharks. So we're talking, of course, chiefly about sharks. This interview was recorded Monday evening. So in recent years, as you've noted, basically all the hoopla about attacks and sightings the level of actual, you know, activity has been pretty constant. But I think in the last two or three years where there maybe was a jump or just maybe, again, a jump in media, pure, whatever, one possible proposed response that I guess is controversial, as I understand it, is something called bite printing. And I wonder if you could say what that is and what, what you think about it. I'm, I'm not terribly knowledgeable about it. 
Um, but my understanding is this is uh, sort of trying to swab for DNA and injuries to identify the specific shark responsible. Yeah, and uh, then it seems like, and then like trying to track down that shark and like remove it from the uh, scene. That feels like a very impractical approach to this problem to me. Um, not uh, even if you could do the genetic side of it uh, and identify an individual shark, you know, we put expensive tags and equipment out on sharks. And we put expensive tags out that when that shark breaks the surface, transmit its location to us. And that's not enough for us to be able to go out and catch that same individual just because we want to. Uh, so I, it feels very improbable to me that you would easily be able to go out and catch an individual that's, you know, one in thousands or hundreds of thousands of animals. Right. But if I follow this, it seems like the aim is to like this shark has attacked people or and or killed people, whatever prompted them to be in this in this bite training thing to begin with. So then we're going to figure out which shark that is, go after that shark, basically kill it where that shark's best buddy who maybe hasn't done that by coincidence that Thursday does start doing some attacks. And so, I mean, what have we really learned here? What have we really accomplished here? other than just sort of randomly taking out a shark because we think that shark has done bad things. Yeah, I, I think that the version of this that there is some evidence for is if you want to reduce the number of sharks that people encounter, if you kill all the sharks in an area over a long period of time, you can reduce the interactions between humans and sharks. Um, there are programs in Australia and in South Africa that engage in netting or fishing for sharks in order to try to keep beaches safe. Uh, and the data there suggests that over time, the catch rates do fall, right? There's a reduction in the total number of sharks in the area where they're being caught. And, you know, interactions between people and sharks also fall because if they're not there, they're not going to interact with people. Uh, but that feels to me like a really high environmental cost uh, to a reduction in risk uh, for people. And, and probably, I would think at least that it's really hard to quantify what its result is or what it's what it's really done in any sort of constructive sense, which I gather these people, ill-conceived or otherwise, are aiming to achieve here. Yes. And I think that there is often um, sort of a nested assumption in people's beliefs about sharks that um, sharks are aggressive, that, you know, a shark bite is a shark attack. Uh, and I would say that from a policy perspective, for dogs, we differentiate between a bite and an attack, right? We understand that a, a bite is a, a one-time event and an attack is a repeated and sustained event. Uh, the vast majority of shark bites are bites, uh, but we treat all of them as though they have the same motives and intentions. And, you know, one thing that I feel very confident about is when a white shark bites a person, it is probably easier for that animal to kill the person than to not kill the person. So the fact that people often survive these bites tells you the extent to which the animal, uh, you know, is engaging in an investigatory uh, behavior and is not following that up. Because, you know, if you're in the water with a large shark and it wants to kill you, it's very capable of doing that. Um, but the vast majority of them want nothing to do with us. Uh, in our drone research here in Miami, we see sharks, you know, in proximity to beaches quite often. And it's very easy to see the extent to which they are avoiding people uh, and creating a lot of space. Um, a similar uh, 
much bigger drone-based study in California in Chris Lowe's lab came out this year that found that on the California beaches they surveyed, there was a tremendous amount of overlap between human spatial use and juvenile white shark habitat that, you know, something like 96% of the time uh, that white sharks were present, humans were present near them. Uh, and these sorts, of, these sorts of negative interactions are incredibly rare. Yeah. And it also sounds like if I follow what you were saying a moment ago, that even if the shark, whether it meant to or not, uh, does bite down on a, a swimmer, a surfer, whatever, sounds like they are, from what you've been, you guys have been able to determine, deciding not to like go further and, and again, would have the option, sounds like pretty instantly to, uh, to kill that person if they, if they were so inclined and they are not inclined. People really are not on the menu for sharks. Yeah, interesting. So this kind of reminds me of one thing that uh, just kind of seems like amusing. But when people use the term unprovoked shark attack, what what's the flip side of that? I mean, are are there some sharks that are taunting people in the water or uh, making fun of them or doing something that does provoke them? I mean, doesn't that seem like it just seem like an odd phrase to me, but maybe I'm missing something. You are not. It does seem odd. Um, it is a technical category that the international shark attack file uses. So they're differentiating here between people who are, you know, sort of doing nothing to increase their risk, minding their own business, swimming at a beach or surfing or paddleboarding and are bitten uh, compared to people who are bitten while they're spearfishing. Right. So you've got fish blood in the water. You've got mm-hmm. sometimes injured fish present. Those things are all dinner bells for sharks. Uh, if a shark bites you under those circumstances, it probably wouldn't have bitten you under other circumstances. So it doesn't seem fair to treat that the same as a bite that happens at the beach. Similarly, um, if you have a shark on a hook and it bites you, if you're a fisherman, uh, that would be considered a provoked attack. If there, um, if there's a lot of blood in the water, you know, let's say that there's a fisherman chumming for sharks and you're swimming nearby and a shark makes a mistake and bites you, uh, that would be considered a provoked attack. So they're differentiating between uh, settings in which people did something that substantially increased their risk. Um, there are certainly some folks on that list uh, who made the mistake of grabbing a shark by the tail and discovered that they can turn around pretty quickly. Mm. Um, Don't grab my tail. N- nobody likes having their tail grabbed. No, I think we all know that. Yeah. Wow. That's really interesting. Okay. Well, that, I'll be less of a wise guy then about unprovoked versus provoked because it sounds like there, there really are important distinctions about how, how those are characterized. So what's a question, like a shark question that a person like me should be asking an expert like you, but rarely does get asked? I think, uh, why should I care about sharks? Uh, might be one of them. You know, okay. a lot of a lot of the questions that people ask tend to focus around uh, the sort of flip side coin of fear and fascination where people are are interested in sharks because of the way that sharks relate to us. Uh, but of course, sharks are really important in the ways that they relate to the ecosystems that they're found in as well. Uh, so sharks have the obvious effect we would expect that they have of managing prey populations through what they eat. So uh, a less fit fish, a slower fish, a fish that's not quite as bright as the other fish, uh, or a fish that's injured uh, or ill, is more likely to be picked off by a predator like a shark. Uh, And that shapes the evolution of the fish species in question, right? The hunting decisions of sharks uh, 
you know, millions of times over millions of years, uh, helps shape the characteristics of the other animals on our planet. Um, but sharks also have an important non-lethal effect on their prey in the sense that um, if you think about being a fish that eats algae on a coral reef, if your coral reef has a healthy shark population, you kind of creep out of your little hole when the coast is clear and you grab a mouthful of algae and you scurry back to that hole and, you know, hope for the best. Um, and if there are no sharks on your reef, you can spend all day swanning around eating everything that's there and there are no real, you know, potential predatory consequences, assuming that you don't have other fish that are, you know, possibly going to eat you. Uh, so sharks shape the way that fish use habitat and the way that fish behave in ways that have an effect on the environment, you know, by affecting how much algae they're eating or how fast they grow or how large their population can get. So stuff that's really interesting like that doesn't bust through the noise pretty much. I think, I think not too often. I mean, and for me personally, I always want people to ask me about juvenile and mesopredatory sharks because, uh, so much of the conversation about sharks tends to focus on the big guys to the extent that people think that sharks are frightening, you know, whereas if we're talking about that average shark that might be three and a half or four feet long, it's hard to look at that thing and say like, oh, it's a killer. It's, it's coming for us. Right. Yeah. 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 No, that, I think that's interesting because again, I think as we talked about earlier, a lot of people would be really surprised and probably are routinely about the size of sharks and the overall shark population, just because, again, as you said a few times, people think about white sharks, the scary sharks, the big sharks, whatever, and probably don't even know anything about a lot of the ones that you study. So that should be homework for everybody, I think. I think so, too. Yeah. So one thing, though, back, and I'm sorry, this is still kind of more on the big shark front, but, but, it, but it did interest me because we talked about a little bit earlier in this conversation about how the incidence of shark attacks and, and bites and, and maybe even sightings has really been pretty level the last two or three years. But it seemed like there was, from what I looked around, there was a jump. What do I have here? I guess something that said from 1950 to, to 2020, the total number of unprovoked shark attacks risen going from 50 in the middle of the last century to over 80 in 2020, and then reaching 111 somehow in 2015. So, so those, those numbers are going up. I don't know what was happening in, in 2015, but that seems like kind of a, a weird, you know, maybe just one off year. So that still, I guess, raises the question if there are whatever the media is doing, if there are increased bites or, or attacks or sightings, what is behind that? So, uh, I, I don't have scientific proof of this, but, uh, my sincere belief is that that is most readily explained by improvements in human welfare that lead to more and more people having the leisure to spend time at the beach and engaged in ocean recreation. The mm. number of people who are on boats, on paddle boards, swimming, uh, surfing has increased radically uh, since that period. Uh, and the amount of time those people spend in the water, particularly in cold water environments like California, where you're more likely to encounter white sharks, has also increased radically as we have improved wetsuit technologies that keep people warmer in the water. Uh, so there's just vastly more scope for humans and sharks to bump into each other. Mm -hmm. uh, and in fact, I would guess that uh, it's the number of people present has 
much more than doubled. Uh, and the number of bites has a little bit less than doubled. Um, I would say that most sharks that live in coastal environments that are frequented by people for recreation know what we are very well and want nothing to do with us. That's certainly my impression from Miami's sharks. Interesting. Yeah. It does make sense. A lot of the numbers or potential numbers have just changed for all those reasons, leisure, recreational, other kinds of things. So the, the potential for those kind of conflicts has just grown. So just with the, numerically, there's going to be more conflict, more action that happens in that way. And uh, and that's where we find ourselves today, pretty much. Yeah. That's what I think. Yeah. So with what you just said about paddleboarders and all this stuff as part of that answer, and we're almost sort of nearing the end of our time here, what are some simple precautions that beachgoers can take to remain safe, whether they're in the beach or in the water, whether they're paddleboarders, whatever some of the people you mentioned that are, that are adding to that greater pool of potential conflict? I mean, I would always recommend giving a wild animal space. Uh, you know, anytime you see one, it is completely appropriate to move away from it slowly, calmly. Um, in general, if I'm advising people about uh, their beach going decisions, I would suggest swim at times of day when the light is good enough to see you clearly, where the water clarity is good enough. Um, you know, sharks generally do not want to interact with people. And at least some of the interactions we do see between sharks and humans uh, are sharks sort of making an error, mistaking a person for something else. Uh, and so making it easy for a shark to tell what you are uh, reduces the risk that it is going to take any interest in you. I also usually uh, advise people not to swim in schools of small fish. Uh, sharks are are there, right? Small fish is shark food. Uh, and so you don't want to confuse them about what you are uh, in a crowd of fish. Uh, because if you have a tanned top of your hand and a pale bottom, it's easy for that pale uh, underside of your hand or foot to look a little bit like a fish's white stomach uh, mm -hmm. if a shark only catches a glimpse of it. I got you. All right, Dr. McDonald, we have, I have one, just maybe a minute or so, but I'm just curious before we uh, say goodbye, is there one more thing about the sharks that you particularly are passionate about that you study that, that we could hear about some other sort of detail or quirk or interesting fact about the, the ones that, that you focus your work on that uh, we could end on that note? Uh, I, I think the one thing I wish I could convince everybody of uh, is that juvenile and mesopredatory sharks are often very cute. Uh, <laughs> and I would invite you to Google some of them, um, but also to visit the University of Miami's shark program website uh, if you want to see some pictures of the animals that we work with. All right, that sounds perfect. And uh, speaking of your own website, it's Dr. Catherine McDonald, and it's DR, of course. Dr. Catherine is in this case spelled C A T H E R I N E, and McDonald in this case is spelled M A C D O N A L D dot com, correct? It sure is. And you can also find us at the Shark Research and Conservation Program at the University of Miami's website, which is sharktagging.com. Ah, okay. I should mention that one. All right. Well, Dr. McDonald, thank you so much. I think I certainly learned a lot about sharks. I'm going to guess most people listening probably have as well. And I really appreciate your time. And if we get some more questions that we'll, we'll bank some of those on next time we'll have you on live and people can call in and ask carryover questions and questions that are live at that moment. And I look forward to that already. I'm thank looking you. forward to it too. Thank you. Thanks a lot. All right, my thanks again to uh, Dr. McDonald and um, 
in the spring, if not before, when she has a different teaching schedule that doesn't directly conflict with being on the air live on Talking Animals. We will reconvene for more Shark Talks, and that way we can field some questions from uh, listeners about various shark-related matters. So again, really appreciate her time and joining us here on Talking Animals. In a moment, I'll talk with Eric Keaton of SPCA Tampa Bay, which is offering Clear the Shelters, its annual no-fee adoption uh, event this Saturday, August 26, plus other animals will similarly be available, also for no adoption fee, through the end of August, including seven pot-bellied pigs. Did I mention one of those pigs is named Porcahontas? Anyway, we'll hear more about SPCA Tampa Bay and these fee-waived adoption opportunities when Eric Keaton joins us in just a moment or two here on Talking Animals. Right now, though, we're going to step into the comedy corner with uh, Mark Takayama doing a piece called, fittingly enough, Punching a Shark in the Face in today's comedy corner on Talking Animals. Let's welcome to Talking Animals, being attacked by a wild animal. Is that a weird fear? It'd be weirder if I had like a fear of being attacked by like a goat, I guess. Or, like sharks? I'm scared to death of sharks, man. Watch that show, Shark Week. You ever watch that? Good show. It's basically a bunch of people who, for those of you who haven't seen it, that go swimming uh, with sharks. Horrible idea. And watching, this guy's in, I think it was South Africa or something, and he was swimming and a 15-foot shark swam right by him. I guess that diver had read somewhere, if that ever happens, you punch the shark in the eye and swim to the surface. What? I read a different book that said, take a crap in your wetsuit and cry. Punch the shark, and he does it. He punches the shark in the eye, 15 foot shark, swims to the surface of the water and looks at his buddy that's filming, goes, did you see that? That shark came out of nowhere. I'm at home on my couch like, dude, you're in the ocean. That shark didn't come out of nowhere. You freaking came out of nowhere. Poor shark. Just going for a shark swim. He goes back to his cave. His buddies are like, Hank, what the hell happened to your eye? It's a good shark name. What happened here? This human being came out of nowhere. Punched me in the freaking eye. It's a gay shark. I think he read that book. You could rarely say that a shark came out of nowhere. You know, it's, one time you could say that maybe you're in Palm Springs, you know? camping with your buddies and you go to roast your s'more, tiger shark snaps your arm off. That shark came out of nowhere. That was uh, Mark Takayama with a piece called Punching a Shark in the uh, 
knows. Today's Comedy Corner on Talking Animals. Now it's time to speak with Eric Keaton of SPCA Tampa Bay, which is presenting Clear the Shelters this Saturday, August 26, opportunities to adopt an animal with no fee. And as an extension of this event, in a sense, there are other animals available with no adoption fee through August 31st, including a pot-bellied pig named, I can't keep, I can't stop mentioning this, Porcahannas. Come on, Porcahannas, come on. To fill us in, let's welcome Eric Keaton back to Talking Animals on WNF. Good morning, Eric. Uh, good morning. Thank you, Duncan, and your audience for having SPCA Tampa Bay on. For yes, sure. Once, ag- once again, it's uh, Clear the Shelters Month. Uh, we've actually been celebrating here at our four-all shelter in Largo since late July because we've seen an increase in a lot of small animals, rabbits, birds, guinea pigs, and we've had them at no fee through the end of August. But this weekend on Saturday, we open it up to all animals, which a lot of folks uh, across the Tampa Bay area, we see more adoptions for our cats and dogs, and they will be available at no adoption fee this Saturday. And we're even opening up early. And, you know, we get hundreds of people uh, that will show up at our front gate uh, before 10 o'clock on Saturday. And it's an exciting time for our animals, for our staff, and for the folks in the area as we try to match up families uh, with the right animals so they can find them a new home. So how does, uh, maybe I'm not smart enough to understand the distinction, So, because it sounds like this has been, in some ways, what's happening Saturday, at least in some regard, has been happening for some time and will indeed go beyond Saturday as well. So help, help me understand the distinctions between what, what, what's happening or what animals may be available at one point, which weren't necessarily available at another point. Sure, sure. So unlike last year, we've seen an increase in a number of our small animals. Uh, last year, we saw a lot of small animals, whether they be, you know, livestock, uh, like pigs or some ducks. Really, that increase was around June and July, and we were more focused on Clear the Shelters as a one-day event only in August of last year. But, Duncan, this year we've, we've seen so many animals uh, uh, surrendered uh, to our for-all shelter that that's the reason we started back in July with just the small animals being no fee, and that's guinea pigs, the rabbits. Uh, we've had some mice. We've had some ducks. We've had some chickens. And right now we have seven uh, pigs as well. Um, and it's, it's just, uh, you know, coincidence that we've had all of them come in at this time uh, leading up to Clear the Shelters. Clear the Shelters is a national event, and the majority of shelters across the country participate. Some uh, have it the whole month. Some, like us, have it for uh, what they call the Crescendo Weekend, mm. uh, this last weekend of August. And so for this Saturday only, we open it up to all of our animals, not just the small ones, not just the livestock. Cats and dogs will be included in that. And we've had uh, averaging about 30 to 40 cats and dogs on uh, the floor up for adoption uh, right now through Saturday. So folks don't have to wait to come in and yeah. adopt an animal. If they're looking for an animal, uh, yes, they're going to range in price right now up uh, for cats and dogs, anywhere from 50 to 60 up to two. Uh, some of the puppies are around $400, and that's because we've seen an increase in care for them. All of our animals that go home are spayed, 
uh, neutered. They have vaccinations. Uh, you know, we, we encourage them to continue their care at our veterinary center in St. Pete or their own doctor that they have with other pets. Um, it's going to uh, have a lot of folks here at our four-all shelter. Uh, if you are looking for a small animal like a pocket pet, please bring a carrier. We have some available for you. Uh, they can't just, uh, we call them pocket pets, but that doesn't mean Duncan. They put them in their pocket, walk yeah. out to their car. They have to have some type of carrier. Right. They don't have it. We'll have one for sale. And like the dogs, they need to have a leash and the proper uh, care to take them uh, home as well. So I guess part of what you're saying, then the, the, the distinction being that, you know, a dog or a cat or whatever, at the moment, there would still be whatever that adoption fee would be. Whereas when you get to Saturday, that same animal uh, that that fee would be waived. Correct. You are correct. Okay. Yeah. If you see an animal on your website today that that you think would uh, make a perfect uh, family pet, you know, please don't wait. Um, the shelter opens today, um, normal hours, uh, one to to six p.m. through Friday, and then on Saturday we're opening early at ten o'clock, and cars will start to line up around nine nine thirty. Wow. Uh, last year, we must have had 100 plus. We stopped counting at 100 plus people coming in uh, when we opened the doors. That, that brings me to another question I was going to ask is like what the past uh, Clear the Shelter days have, have done in terms of results, and, and then perhaps based on that, what you're expecting to happen this Saturday. Yeah, yeah that's a great question. Last year, we had 77 adoptions. Wow. Uh, the year before, we did not waive the adoption fee, and we had about half that amount. Uh, and I can keep going back to, to 2019 uh, when we did uh, a no-fee adoption event and we were close uh, to 70-plus. We have more than 100 animals in our care right now, and we have not cleared 100 uh, adoptions in one day. And, yes, the goal is to clear the shelter, but really the goal is to find these animals a forever home. Yeah. If we do half that amount and don't clear the shelter – that's okay. That's 50 animals and 50 families that are happy. Sure. We still have these other animals on Sunday. We just, they're back on the adoption floor. We continue their care, and we hope that another family comes in uh, for the rest of the, of the month and the rest of the, the year. And let me ask you this, because the, the, I know this is almost uh, an age-old uh, philosophical quandary, if not full-on debate. So when you... Uh, Enable folks to adopt an animal with no fee. Uh, what have you found in terms of how, how, what percentage, I guess, are successful adoptions versus things that don't work out, but people, you know, kind of jumped at the chance because it, there wasn't a fee involved, and so they could they could swing it if other things were a little bit tight at the time financially. Yeah, that that and that's a, a great point. We found a, a lot of that uh, is, is mainly myth. Uh, our counselors and our volunteers do a great job, and. My job here is to say just because it does not have an adoption fee, it still comes with a lifetime of care, you know, with your veterinarian, with every day, the feeding, um, you know, with the, the essentials that it needs for its shelter and its home, whether that be a crate if it's a big dog or uh, a fenced-in uh, area uh, if you're adopting a rabbit. Um, it's also... Uh, a big time for us because hurricane season is still going on. And with the number of animals we have in care, with the number of animals we have in foster and in other parts of our kennels waiting to get on the adoption floor, 
events like this clear the shelters nationwide, the reason they have them is so we can move in some of those other animals that are waiting to get on the adoption floor. And with hurricane season, sometimes we're teaming up with the Louisiana SPCA, the Houston SPCA, other shelters in Georgia, uh, because the storms may be impacting them or us, and we need to move animals out or move animals in. That totally makes sense. And it sounds like what your emphasis to people that are participating in Saturday's event with the no fee is like, yeah, there's no fee, but I hope your commitment is no no different than anybody else who came in two days ago and did pay a fee and comes in tomorrow right. or the next day and does pay a fee because these animals are indeed animals that do need your care. And if that involves veterinary care or something else, we do kind of you know expect that that's what you'll do if you take this animal home. Yeah, I mean, the the price, like I'm sure the, the cost for human health care has gone up. The, the, the cost for animal care has gone up, yeah. well, whether that's at our shelter or a private uh, uh, a family that has their own two dogs uh, and a cat. You know, I'm sure their, their veterinary care has gone up. The, the price of uh, cat and dog food has gone up. So, yes, just because it has a zero adoption fee for all animals on Saturday, there's still required care. Um for that family to take care of that animal uh, for the rest of its life. Yeah. All right, Eric. Well, let's let's give us the uh, uh, website and any kind of socials where people could find out more or even see some of these animals that they might well uh, make a love connection with uh, on Saturday, if not before. Yes, please go to spcatampabay.org. Um, you can't miss our uh, pages for clear the shelters if you want to get specific it's spcatampabay.org slash clear dash the dash shelters uh please bring your patients on saturday if you have another dog in your family and you want them to meet your new furry friend uh please bring that dog and a friend with you so we can do a proper dog introduction that does take some time um if you're looking for a, a small pet like rabbit uh, or guinea pig Bring your family as well. Make sure the family makes that connection. Uh, and if you have a uh, cat or small animal in mind, bring a carrier so that way that uh, the animal can be uh, contained when it leaves SBCA Tampa Bay. We'll have some water. We'll have some shade. We know it's going to be a hot day. It's going to be an exciting day. Yeah. I can't wait to see everybody and match up uh, families with their new friends. Well, that sounds great, Eric. Well, thank you so much for uh, joining us on Talking Animals and explaining everything. And uh, sounds like it's going to be a, a day full of animals and people and new connections. And uh, plus, at some point, well, hopefully the, the Porcahontas and others will find a home as well. Yes, yes, yes. Anybody has, wants information about those pigs, check with your city, check with your county ordinances, your HOA. That is a, uh, a totally different ad adoption, but they are some friendly fellas. <laughs> okay, well, that's great. Thanks again, Eric. Good luck on Saturday and beyond. Thank you, Duncan. Thank Bye -bye. you. All right, we have just about reached the end of today's edition of Talking Animals on WMNF Tampa. Coming up, it's Slice of Life, the wonderful new show hosted by Randy Zerman. After that, we shift back into music with uh, Scott Elliott in for Jim Bannon and uh, all kinds of other great stuff happening after this. WMNF Tampa. Live.